Good evening. If you would open up your Bible to Revelation chapter 2, we'll be in verses 8 through 11. It's Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11. And as you're turning there, our guide had told us that this hike would be incredible. That in an area of the world known for its hiking, that the view that this hike would reveal would be like nothing we'd ever seen before. He called it 360 degrees of awesome. But he also warned us that it wouldn't be easy. Yet despite the difficulty, that it would be worth it in the end. Yet from the start of this hike, it was obviously going to be a slog. The pathway was wet, slippery, and overgrown, littered with stinging nettles and all things thorny and grabby. And along the way, to be frank, there really wasn't much to look at. Just trees, branches, rocks, and underbrush. There were incessant switchbacks and slick boulders to navigate, yet amidst the struggle upwards, we would from time to time catch these partial glimpses through the branches of what was awaiting us at the top, only to have the trail disappear once again into the dense undergrowth. How does Jesus prepare his church for suffering and for persecution? That, brothers and sisters, is the question the text puts before us tonight as we come to the letter to the church in Smyrna as found in the book of Revelation. And this letter is similar in structure but differs greatly in content from all the other letters. Mainly because Smyrna is a spiritually healthy church. And Jesus offers them no harsh word of correction nor condemnation, only words of consolation and encouragement. For though the church in Smyrna is spiritually healthy, suffering and persecution are knocking on its doors. And in many ways, this is a letter wrought with paradox, with seemingly contradictory realities. Paradoxes like those who are poor are actually rich. Those who are Jews aren't actually Jews. There was one who died, yet sprang to life again. This is a church that appears weak, but it's actually quite strong. See, the church in Smyrna is a church that's faithful, that's growing, that's healthy. Yet it's also a church besieged by suffering, by persecution and struggle. The question then is, how does Jesus prepare his church for suffering and persecution. And in many ways, what Jesus is doing here in his letter to the church in Smyrna is he's giving them a glimpse of something glorious. For he knows the path before them. And dear brothers and sisters, he knows the path before us. He knows the terrain of our days. He knows our sorrows, our difficulties, and our struggles. So how does Jesus seek to encourage this church as it seeks to navigate paradox 
to paradise. Well, he gives them a glimpse of something awesome, something amazing, a hope that can shine through even the darkest canopies of our lives, a hope that helps us track and traverse our way through even the steepest inclines and the sharpest thorns of this life. Because what Jesus unveils, what Jesus reveals to a suffering and a persecuted church is himself. Revealing three amazing things about who he is. That Jesus is a Savior who speaks. A Savior who knows. And a Savior who gives. So hear now God's word from Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, The words of the first and the last, who died and who came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to, be th- about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Well, let's dive into our first point this evening, a Savior who speaks. The church in Smyrna is a church facing the prospect of dark days and dark nights of the soul. Tribulation and suffering are on their doorstep. And amidst suffering, silence can often prove deafening. Yet into the silence, into the darkness, into the struggle, Jesus speaks. And what does he say? To begin with, he says the words of the first and the last. Jesus is telling them who he is and how that relates to their present circumstances and situations. Here is the church under the thumb of the Roman Empire. And some in their midst are losing their livelihoods. Others will be imprisoned. And so others will be put to death on account of their faith in Jesus Christ. And what Jesus is declaring into the depths of their soul and into the horror of their struggle is that while the Romans and the Jews are perhaps the powers that be, that Jesus is the God who was and who is and who is to come. You may be powerless, but your God is powerful. And his is a kingdom that will endure forever. That before and after, over and above all earthly powers, that their Savior, their Redeemer, and their Lord reigns sovereign and supreme. For he is the God who is Lord at the first and the last and over everything in between. So despite what appearances may suggest, Jesus, Jesus has not abandoned Or been ousted from his throne. But that from the first to the last. 
our God reigns. And not only is he the God who reigns, who rules, and whose kingdom shall know no end, but he's also the one who died and who came to life. That he possesses power and authority even over death, demonstrating that through his life, death, and resurrection. And in doing so, he's also the one who blazed persecution's path before us. Elsewhere in John 15, 18, Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Essentially what Jesus is getting at here is that persecution's path is a trail our Savior has trod before us. Jesus entered into the mess of this world. He lived a perfect and sinless life. And he too was maliciously slandered, falsely accused, and eventually unjustly nailed to a cross. A cross upon which he bore the wrath of our sin so that he could give to us his righteousness. And as those clothed in his righteousness, we can enter into his kingdom. A kingdom that will know no end. Yet Jesus didn't just die for our sin. He sprang back to life, as our text tells us. For death was not the end of Jesus. Nor likewise the death of his beloved people. Brothers and sisters, ours is a hope that death can't defeat. For in Christ's death, death has been defeated. So what are we to make of this? Well, Jesus speaks that we might know and remember who he is. For in a world that so often feels and looks like it's falling apart, it's a good thing to know the one who holds all things together. So let me ask you, Do you know him this evening? Because through his word, that's what he offers us. The opportunity to know and love him as our Lord and Savior. For Jesus is the first and the last. He's also the one who died and he rose again from the dead. That by his wounds, that we might be healed. As we look to him by faith. Resting in the redemption that he has accomplished and now applies to our hearts and to our lives. But let me also ask, if you know him, are you being intentional amidst the various seasons of life? As we say at weddings, whether in plenty or in want, in sickness or in health, in joy or in sorrow, are we being intentional to remember, to recount, to recall, and to reflect upon who our Savior is and what he's done for us. Because it's easy to forget. Life swoops in hard and fast, and we can so easily lose track of both time and what's true. So Lord's Day after Lord's Day, Week after week, day after day, year after year, are we incessantly drawing near to him through the means of grace to remember, to recount, 
and to reflect upon the awe-inspiring character and qualities of our God. Which takes me to my second point, a Savior who knows. In verse 9, Jesus says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich in the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. To bring in a touch of context here, Smyrna was a city in Asia Minor that was famed for its devotion and allegiance to Rome, Roman culture and Roman religion. So in order to be a member of the various professional guilds, to buy and sell goods of any kind in the city marketplace, it required one to make sacrifices to the various and appropriate Roman gods. Therefore, the Christians in Smyrna couldn't do business in those places. They couldn't be active participants in normal everyday functions and aspects of life in Smyrna. And as a result, the ability of families to feed and clothe themselves would have been severely limited and hampered, leaving the majority of the church impoverished for no other reason than their faithfulness to God. And it was also the city's devotion to Rome that made the slanderous accusations of the Jews all the more precarious for this church. Because even the hints of sedition, rebellion, or defiance was to be snuffed out and met without mercy or delay. See, amidst the everyday difficulties and uncertainty, Jesus is not unaware of their situation, their circumstances, their enemies, For he's a shepherd who knows his sheep from the hairs on the heads, on their heads, to the ones on our feet. He knows us. He knows our struggles, our afflictions, our adversaries, and he particularly knows those things that we suffer for his name's sake. What a beautiful and glorious truth that in Christ we have a Savior who knows us, who loves us, and who graciously and gloriously situates the realities of our suffering within the surety of his sovereignty. See, while, God, while Jesus knows their suffering, he doesn't simply feel sorry for them. He doesn't throw them a pity party. No, he reminds them that even in their poverty, they are actually quite rich. Rich not by worldly means, standards, or metrics, but rich in faith, which is a treasure, which is a pearl of incomparable worth. You see, this church was poor, but it was rich in what will eternally matter. To put it in the words of Jim Elliot's, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Or in the words of the psalmist, the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life, so my lips will praise you. Or in another place, that one day with the Lord is better than a thousand elsewhere. That it's better to be a servant or a slave in the house of God than to be a king anywhere and everywhere else. See, it is then in light of this wealth 
the riches of faith that this church can navigate its fears. Verse 10 says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. Jesus encourages this persecuted church in two ways then in verse 10. He doesn't want them to fear or to be afraid, and he wants them to be faithful. Well, when do you tell someone not to fear? When they're afraid, when they're scared, when things seem all but certain. Perhaps you've noticed there's some rather disconcerting realities to what Jesus is saying. He's not saying, you know that thing that you're really dreading, that thing that you're really, really afraid of and anxious about, prison, death, poverty. Don't worry, that's not going to happen. No, he says the opposite. You know that thing that you're dreading, that reality that has you really nervous, really anxious? Buckle up, because it's on its way. It's coming. Yet know this. Though suffering and trial comes, they come with sovereign limitations. Our passage refers to 10 days of imprisonment, which is more of a reference to Daniel chapter 1 and the time of testing of Daniel and his friends than than to the exact length of their prison stay. The point being that whether their prison stay be 10 days or 10 years, that those days are both known and numbered by their sovereign God. That even in their testing and tribulation, their God is in control. To be sure, God's ways are oft mysterious. Yet as others have said, if we knew what God knew, we would pray exactly for what he has given us. Therefore, we need not fear, come what may. When do you tell someone to be faithful, even none to death? When the cost to discipleship is rather steep. A martyr's death was a real reality for some in that congregation. And it is a real possibility for many in congregations in in our world today as well. And brothers and sisters, we need to be praying for our brothers and sisters, particularly as they navigate persecution's path. Yet the reality is that death is a rather stark prospect for us all. Yet even in the shadow of death, we are called to be faithful. And the reason we can be faithful unto death is that Jesus was faithful through his death that we might know life. Which leads us to our third point, the Savior who gives. Which begs the question, what does he give? That in our death, he will give us the crown of life. Now there's a good bit of discussion amongst commentators about what's in view here with this crown of life, but suffice to say, with the word crown, a Smyrnian's ear would have perked up because crowns were a culturally significant object to their city, kind of like a golf cart in Peachtree City. 
Archaeologists have found crowns imprinted in their currency, but also discovered that crowns were also a rather prominent uh, in the city's architecture as well. More broadly, rather than signifying a kingly crown, most commentators believe that this crown was a reference to the victor's crown seen in the Olympics or other athletic events. So what, so what is Jesus getting at here? What is he saying here? Well, even in defeat, you will have victory. Even in death, you will discover life. For Jesus will give them the crown of life. That in this life, they are the victors. Because Christ has risen from the dead. Therefore, in his victory, he has given us, his bride, the victor's crown. Suffering, persecution, and death make for an ominous future. Yet he implores them, and he implores us to be faithful even into death. For he will give us the crown of life. As we've said, the Christian life is plagued with paradox. There is victory even in defeat. There is life even in death. In large part because there is more to our lives than just this life. There is an eternal life to consider. For God has placed eternity in our hearts. And our story has in Christ been situated within the story of redemption. That while the realities of death, persecution, and suffering will inhabit and be part of their story and even our story, that story is not the end of their story, nor, of our, nor, nor will, will it be the end of ours. Christ will give us the crown of life. That though we die, yet we will be the victors of life. For through the storms of life, we have a sure and steady anchor. That though we die in Christ, yet shall we live. Because death is not our end. You see, Jesus won't let us settle for small, self-focused and self-obsessed stories. For there is grave danger in those. No, our Savior will have us know that our story is more than dates with a dash in between. In Christ, our story has been swept up into the eternal story, the story, the story of the grace and glory of God at work in this world, a story of redemption, a story far larger and more significant than just our own. A story of the creation, fall, redemption, and consummation of all things. You see, what this story does is that it situates our suffering, our stories, in the sovereign providences of God. It situates our story in God's unfolding plan of redemption. His plan of making all things new. A story that enables us to navigate the various paradoxes of our lives with the anchored surety that in Christ paradise awaits. And what we see in mere glimpses now, we will one day behold with unveiled face in 360 degrees of awesome.
So as we conclude, we began by asking the question, how does Jesus seek to prepare his church for persecution and for suffering? Well, church history tells us of a man named Polycarp, a man born in AD 69. So no matter how you date Revelation, he was either a young boy or a young man when Revelation was making its rounds around Asia Minor. He would have grown up a disciple of the Apostle John, and he would later become the pastor, the bishop of a city called Smyrna. And in his old age, the powers that be would arrest him. They would beat him and warn him that either he must renounce his faith or be killed. To which his reply was simply this. Eighty-six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then could I blaspheme my king who saved me? Brothers and sisters, God's word accomplishes what it intends. And brothers and sisters, ours is a savior who finishes what he starts. Therefore, if he has begun a good work, he will finish that good work even to the end. That despite life's paradoxes, he will bring us all the way home to glory, to paradise. And the way that Jesus prepares his followers for suffering is by giving them glorious glimpses of him along the way. Glimpses that he has given to steal us in our faith. To encourage and to help us to endure and to endeavor on in faith. And here at this table, we get such a glimpse For here at the Lord's table, we behold the sign and seal of the covenant of grace. A sign and seal of his body broken and his blood poured out for you and for me. So may we do this in remembrance of him. That we might not be afraid and that we might be faithful. Even unto death, resting in him who has accomplished far more abundantly than all we could ever ask for or even imagine. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word that it accomplishes what it intends. So Father, would you accomplish that which you intended in us? Would you bring us all the way home to glory? We pray these things now in your son's name. Amen.